Oh my God, we're back again. What's up, all you beautiful people? It's your boy Hobart coming to you on this super fogged out Friday in the Bay. Today is Friday, August 20th, most auspicious day. Uh, Shout out to my brother, the Chone. Happy birthday, bro. Just got back from a little birthday brunch and uh, about to go hit an outdoor adventure, but I wanted to get this out to you all uh, before I left because it's a very apropos episode given the day. Um, Today, my guest is a local Bay Area musician who I feel like this guy has, has played with everybody. I see him on so many stages making music and, um, today is a great day to release this because, uh, the man himself, Mr. Daniel Eric is playing a show with his band speakeasy at the independent in San Francisco tonight. So, you know, I don't know how many people are going to get this in time, but if you're looking for something to do, you got to go check them out. The independent's a great venue and they're a great band kind of neo soul vibe. Um, and so that's going on tonight. And, uh, as you'll hear about in this episode, you know, back in January, we did a, uh, I was invited by their band to head up to Gualala to this little cabin for a weekend retreat, uh, in which they were going to be recording an album and they hired me to, shoot some music videos for uh, for them and so of all the videos we shot uh probably the biggest undertaking uh was a video that we dropped today for a song called heaven and sevens so there's a lot going on on this friday as you can tell but uh yeah um i first met daniel years ago uh, we both kind of showed up to a rehearsal for another friend's band and we played a little bit of music together. And then, uh, you know, over the intervening years, I saw him pop up, but it wasn't really until we did this, this retreat in January that I got a chance to really sit down and talk to him in an extended context. And so, you know, I felt like on that trip, uh, I really got to know him better and understand, excuse me, understand, uh, who he is as a person. And we certainly got a lot closer on that trip and have since been hanging out more and, uh, going on mountain bike rides. And it's just always nice to make a new friend. And, um, as well as like seeing Daniel on stage and, he is such a talented bass player. I'm really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I just, I really appreciate his groove and his chops. And it's as a fellow bass player, he's someone that I admire in his style of playing and, uh, the way that he can articulate bass melodies and, and feed the groove talented dude. So I'm glad he came on. We had a blast. We went out and hit a little mountain bike ride and, and hit a sauna and then jumped into the podcast studio. Um, and here you go. So uh, we kind of start off just talking about, uh, you know, movies and vamp stuff, Star Wars takes. And then uh, 
and then we jump into like a little bit more of an autobiography and you know we trade our music philosophies and get into all that stuff so a little something for the whole family to enjoy um but yeah that's it so uh why don't we just jump into it right here and get started so without further ado let me introduce to you my friend mr daniel eric on this episode 35 of the bartcast great to hear from you what a surprise Celebrating your successes and failures requires mm-hmm. both great. Courage. I don't know what it says. It's kind of slightly ripped, it's so it's kind of faded. It's, it's got some tea soaked, nice. but but it's it's. I get what it's saying. Nice. It takes courage. Sometimes the truth can be obscured, you know, and sometimes exactly. the deepest truths often are. It's yeah. It's open to interpretation. <laughs> what that other and item is. There you go. Hell yeah. So, nice. That's a good intention to set. Um, mine is. What can you appreciate in this moment? So to all you listening out there, what can you appreciate in this moment other than our beautiful voices? <laughs> and life. And life. Those are the uh those are the truths that we got from our yogi tea bag tags. Yogi tea tags. Um I think I can appreciate that we just hit like a badass mountain bike ride, yeah. which really is a good mood shifter. Oh, yeah. And uh, then I got my friend Daniel here. How's it going, everybody? Sitting sitting on the couch. And uh, we just hit a ride in a nice sauna. Oh, and yeah. Now we Sweat are it out. Fully in podcast space. Coming to you live from the Bartcast. Welcome, oh, yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah, welcome, welcome. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for coming on. It's good to have you. Of and, course. Uh, as always... It's a tradition I'm trying to start. She's been here with us, but I think, you know, apropos of our talk earlier in the in the backyard with Sir Craig, we need to, I'd like to start, you know, trying, if I can remember in my podcasts, to setting the intention in the beginning to, uh, to honor, you know, one of the great uh, female figures of of the ages you know a true a true leader time. a true badass and a true and a princess you and know? a warrior and a warrior and a lover and uh and a and a mystic and that is a uh, princess leah organa solo give it up for her. sorry leah who am i leia. princess leah Organa Solo. You got it. You got it. I was reading it and often... yeah, it's like writ. How is it written? Is it actually spelled? Yeah, right? it's it's Leia. I, I'll read the uh, with the I back. I see why the... it's why it's why. It... This is the Return of the Jedi version um, of Leia, which is like kind of an older and wiser <laughs> Leia. I always yeah, felt. for sure. It says on the back, Princess Leia Organa, courageous and sworn to the rebel cause. 
Princess Leia Organa, in love with the captured Han Solo, attempted a dangerous rescue mission in the court of Jabba the Hutt. Continued on card number six, Lando Calrissian. So I guess you oh, got to collect Land- them all. And Lando's, story. and Lando's after Leia for sure. He's. He, oh, you think he's in pursuit? Oh, he's the kind of friend that we were talking about. You probably don't <laughs> want to have the one that's like <laughs> might feel comfortable sleeping with your girlfriend. Yeah, that's right. kind of his vibe, though. Yeah, he does. He's dashing. He is a rogue. You know, he is does play the part well of the. And he got, he's rogue. got a cape. He does have a cape. The cape adds some. Can we bring the cape there. back? I think mm-hmm. the cape is like, I'm very pro cape. I'm pro cape too. And I think that it's our culture stuff. would be, it might solve a lot of problems. You know, if people just started wearing capes again, you know. I think that that was the coolest time in humanity when we all had capes for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, there's so many opportunities for enhancing your expressiveness if you oh, think yeah. about it like all the flourishes and bows yeah and... the embellishments of like just walking in general it changes your stride let's say you have an argument with someone you can swiftly walk away or let's right. say you give someone your number mm-hmm. and something then you can just be like here's my number this is when capes were cool and cell phones were too right. um yeah you could just swiftly give said information and then turn your cape and, and talk about it. making a dramatic entrance exactly you know, it just enhances it, it so it could be kind of dracula vibe so we should yeah. I mean, you know, it's not always a bad thing. Yeah, vampires are kind of in vogue. Yeah, they're coming back, right? Yeah. The true I blood mean, was real. I heard a good interesting conversation the other day. They were debating like the quality of experience like of beco- of like becoming a vampire versus becoming a werewolf. Oh shit. And just like how much better it would be to like vampire you get bit it's like vaguely sexual you know like you're kind of this hot vampire that lives forever whereas like werewolf you're like looks incredibly painful you're just like a monster yeah you instantly become like just like the big thing for a vampire versus a human right is they just have teeth different teeth but they're pretty pale too right yeah i guess so but but a werewolf a werewolf it's like dude you fucking all of a sudden got hair popping out in places you didn't have hair you know you got feet coming out like you're just like your shit is just morphing more drastically i think it's like pubescent manhood turned up to a hundred yeah turned up to like (laughs) dog right okay yeah i guess the only thing is like you get really strong and you can run faster, I would imagine. Yeah, but vampires, I mean, I think that the older they are, the more powerful they are. That would make sense. That's like what, at least when I used to watch True Blood, which I mm. have, would never admit <laughs> yeah, to watching. Wait, what did I just do? Is that what you guys did in Missouri? <laughs> you know what? Missouri's kind of a boring place. We had HBO. There wasn't a lot of content out, okay. and I, I got me some True Blood. And uh, yeah, the older vampires are stronger. Was True Blood... Uh... What what was the one that was like really like teen angsty? That's the one. That's True Blood. Yeah, and she's got like multiple vampires. Oh no, I was thinking Twilight. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, I didn't fuck with that one. True Blood was like the cool. True Blood was like a TV show that was based in the South, like in really racist South, and it like pitted like vampires against humans and this whole like societal thing. It's weird. But also, I definitely watched it to the end. <laughs> it was a show about the issues? Yeah. yeah. You know, trying to create a microcosm of the universe. Right. No big deal. With vampires. With yeah, people vampires. really, like, I feel like people really got into vampires. That movie Twilight. Right? Yeah, That's during like... that time, like, 
there was like a vamp wave that took over where like i know like when i was in high school i feel like it was when like the twilight years were happening at least and there was a whole subsect of our school that was like all in on the vamp wave and started like dressing goth and shopping at hot topic i mean there was always like those kids but it did a lot for hot topic yeah and i also i also thought it did like an interesting thing where it like made the scary guy seem alluring kind of you know how it always did scary guys have always been alluring yeah i mean but that's the that's like the thing that i think a lot of women gravitated to right the danger the danger guy right he's the guy that becomes a vampire so how old do you got to be of a vamp before you can turn into a bat? What do you think? Is that like thousand, hundred years in? Thousand, that's thousand what, years yeah, in? That's a thousand years in. Because I know Dracula had that power, but is that like a? It's not a, that given, a That's not a given. That takes a lot of a lot of years of sleeping in the coffin. I guess so. Sleeping in the dark, no windows. You know. You know. Speaking of trashy, like supernatural TV, have you seen that show, Supernatural? Oh, I've heard about it. I haven't actually seen all of it. I start. I watched like a couple episodes with my brother recently. It's so bad that it's amazing. Yeah. It's like so cheesy, but like it works. Oh, yeah. And it's totally like a trip back into like the early 2000s sure. vibe. Like the everyone and the girls are all like super hot. Oh, yeah. They come oh, in. Yeah. They're just Ridiculously like the like hot, right? traditional Ridiculously. babe, you know, <laughs> that like we all grew up on that like traditional like millennial babe <laughs> oh yeah the millennial babe look i I've, open midriffs peace yep. bellies <laughs> i i watched a show that you're reminding me of it's called the 100 oh it, yeah did you watch the 100 it was the silliest premise is that for the one that's movie, in like portuguese no it's okay. no it's in english it was like a big i, TV I don't show. think i could get past the it, the the trailer it was like it was basically the premise was a bunch of juvenile delinquents on a earth had been like destroyed and Mm. not habitable for a hundred years and then basically they were all floating in orbit um, over earth Mm. and then they basically sent the juvenile delinquents of on board the ship down to the planet to see if it was habitable so it was like all these like angsty teenagers Mm. juveniles and it was the silliest fucking thing. And like, all the chicks were so ridiculously hot. You're like, yeah. no way. That's supposed to be like a 16-year-old girl. Science in 16-year-old biologist or something. I know. Was, I, they yeah. should have called it angst and hormones in the time of robots. I know. That's that's what it was. Yeah. That, what was that show? They made they did like a season of the sci-fi show that was... Uh, I forget what the name of it was, but it was... um. It had. Did you ever get into Battlestar Star Galactica? Yeah, for sure. So, what's the name of the the like badass female character? Starbuck. Starbuck. She was like the star of this oh, show. Oh, this is this was recent. It was recent, yeah, and it she's was like just the space captain, right? Yeah, and I it was that. just the most trash writing. Oh my god! It was actually the first season. I thought was okay. I couldn't. I got a couple in, and then I. Uh, I did some like Reddit exploring. Oh God! See, I don't even do that. Just, I just because I didn't want to like invest it. all these hours if it wasn't going to get better. Like, I'll give a show <laughs> definitely go past the pilot, but I'll give it a couple episodes to for pick sure, up. Sure. But like, it it uh, and this is going to be a controversial take. Uh, I I for I one did not like Battlestar Galactica. Oh wow, interesting. But I watched all like 79, 80 hours of it. So I spent eighty hours on this show. Some episodes I'd like leave the room make some food, come back in, like, without pausing. Yeah, that show is too hard, too complicated. To I was that. pissed off by the ending. I really didn't like where they chose to end it with. But anyways, I know that's unpopular. A lot of people love that show. How So, like, 
without having that draw of like a lot of people really liked this new show because it had Starbuck in it. Yeah. Like I didn't even have that. Yeah. So like all I saw was just like really bad, like sci-fi channel level acting, terrible writing. And then what was really fun was after, after like watching a few of the episodes reading like the Reddit reviews of it, like the internet always wins. I know the internet is 10 out of 10, you know, but like also some of them were so insightful and like, and like totally, um, like merciless, but like also like, great points yeah so what are you gonna do what are you gonna do (laughs) there's a lot of like shows like that i that i i feel like i get into and i like it while i'm watching it and then i'm done and i'm like that was not very high quality of an experience not worth my time (laughs) yeah well you know we're we're living in they're trying to make money we're living in the age of endless content so yeah one can afford to be a little discriminating in the content they I, imbibe yeah, that, maybe that's what makes it better yeah i watched a show that i actually really liked did you check out ever hear the tv show terra nova no terra nova was cool it's like they found like a break in the space time continuum and like after the earth is like uninhabitable they like send a team back there and apparently the portal can only work one way and it's like Mm. this whole thing and so they go back like 80 million years to the land of the dinosaurs so it's like jurassic park meets like future humans that are like (laughs) trying to live like harmoniously yeah you know it it was cool okay i like that show they they canceled it after two seasons because i guess i was alone in liking it yeah yeah (laughs) i liked it i'll give it a gander it's terra nova my problem with a lot of those shows is they always try to ram so much cgi down down your brain and it's like they that cgi like i'm waiting for hollywood to learn just how badly cgi ages yeah like five years later it looks like complete dog shit and like you see these movies that are like 75 percent cgi and it's like this is this might have been cool now. Yeah. Like personally, I like the real effect, like realistic for sure. effects. For sure, I think CGI should be, you know, used sparingly, sprinkled yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you watch that show, Life on Mars? It's kind of the opposite of that, where it's like they like put in the detail to make you feel like you're in the seventies. That was like the docudrama kind of thing. It was like half documentary, half no, drama. no. It was like a. It felt like every episode was a movie. Okay, and it was like basically this cop in the nineties. This is how the show starts. It starts mm-hmm. the cop in the 90s. He's like in pursuit of someone like on street in the street, gets hit by a car, wakes up and he's in 1970. Hmm. And then the entire plot like works out and there's like all these famous actors, Christopher Imperioli from like The Sopranos is in it and like um I think like Gene Hackman is in it. It's like got a bunch of okay. it's a TV show and the music's really good. Nice. And it was only like two seasons. I don't want to spoil it for you. No, I'll check it show, out. That show, sure. that show is worth watching. Cool. Not as much Terra Nova, but yeah, Life yeah. on Mars. It's like it's like every episode is a little micro movie. Hell yeah! And well, not CGI. Well, uh, yeah, dude. I'm uh, I'm down for sure. The, the I'm guessing the portal only were, went one way in that version as well. <laughs> well, that one's got a crazy twist that I don't want to spoil. Yeah, don't spoil. No. Yeah, I think with that, uh, the 100, 
with the 100, um, like just my like Netflix, read the descriptor, look at the image. It felt very like lost, lost esque to me. Yeah. And like, I wa- I sat through like four or five seasons of Lost, and then I gave up because just got it started getting so repetitive. Yeah, it, goes in circles, it was like yeah. all build up and no, they never delivered never the goods. You no know, bust. you don't yeah. bust. It was like all blue balls. It was like five seasons <laughs> of blue balls, and and then I stopped, and then I was like really stoked. Like when I heard like how angry people were on the oh ending, oh my god, yeah, and I was like, yes, I didn't sit through all that. I didn't have to like because I would have been pissed too. Well, the Sopranos know? was similar, where it's like a lot of people were really upset about the yeah. way that that ended. But I, fi- I, I, I actually thought it was a really bold and like interesting, artistic way to do it. That's the thing; they embraced you know? it. Yeah. They embraced the mystery of like this guy's life is right. constantly in danger, yeah. and he has to watch his back everywhere he goes at all times. Yeah, and you don't know what happens. Like it, it, what it did was it like it gave another like at least couple of months, if not years, of speculation that which like lent the show this extra mystique about it, which I thought was really cool. I'm in the middle of like my third rewatch. Oh wow! Okay, because yeah, uh, a good place to be. Shout out, Lesh has never seen him, so like me and Whoa. my brother have been watching him with him, and it's so exciting watching that show with someone that's never seen yeah. it because. When the new characters come in, you're like, oh, like Who's this, this arc. Guy? Oh, yeah. this is about to start. Like, oh, no, not this, this know. guy. You know, like. That's good. So. I, I like think... the, the season with Steve Buscemi. Have you gotten there yet? No, I forgot about that. Yes. No, we're, <laughs> I think we're in season three, you know, because he goes out on tour and then like. Oh, yeah. And then then he... we go through long periods of time where we don't watch it and then we'll like, you know, binge it. And there you go. You know, it's a it's. I heard the argument recently that it's the best television show of all time, and I think that I would not. I think that there's an argument for that, and I, I would love to have that conversation, like as a podcast, yeah, and make a lot thing. of people angry, you know. But Sopranos is pretty. But pretty I do think show. it's like one of those ones that like is in the goat conversation. Yeah, for it sure. the t- it'll stand the test of time. When you yeah. rewatch The Sopranos in 20 years, you'll be like, obviously this is dated in ways, but like also the humor and the depth of the writing and the subtle yeah. little funny things like where like Tony's always eating fucking gabagool and mm-hmm. like a sandwich. Breathing, just like, nose breathing. Just like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like those things will age. It's like, yeah. Go, well, one of, one of the things that really struck me on this time through is just how much the humor like uh like supports and boosts the drama cuz oh, yeah. so many of these like drama series they're like so dramatic that they get like it's like boring or you need like an emotional like the audience needs time to like come down from the deep emotional moments and what the soprano does very well is like there's so much just sitting around time where it's just like these Italian New Jersey guys schmucks just shooting the shit and there's yeah. so much humor in it and yeah. it's so enjoyable to watch and then something really big will just yeah. suddenly happen you're well, like oh shit you know or like characters like Tony's mom who's like she's you, she just like she's, the, she's best. the best and the worst right she's just like pushes your fucking buttons mm-hmm. in every way and you like oh, have yeah. to remember that's not a real person that's right. like that's a character that this woman is taking on. Just I know. Like, imagine, even though you're like, oh, that fucking bitch. Imagine like experiencing her in like the real world. Oh my that. god, I would run. I would run. 
It's like the first time I saw an interview with James Gandolfini mm-hmm. after watching the whole Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Like when you hear him speak with like a normal like Californian accent, yeah, it's so shocking after like yeah, you're like he's a hard six ass. or seven series like seasons of, of the of Sopranos. Of. You're like. Wait, he's just like, yeah, I was really good working on this project. <laughs> You're like, that's how he sounds? <laughs> so, yeah. so Daniel, for those of you who don't know, my friend Daniel here is a prolific Bay Area musician, artist, multi-instrumentalist. Um, and I just wanted to kind of get in a little bit. You know, we can talk about whatever, but yeah. I thought it might be interesting to... Uh, just kind of talk about like how you got into music and mm. what your approach is to playing. Sure. You know? Yeah, we can get uh, into all that. And, you know, maybe a little bit about the story and we can explore all the tangents as they yeah. come up. But uh, when did you start playing? Ooh. I started... Wait, wait, wait. Let me stop you. Yeah. When you think about yourself as a musician. Sure. What is in your hands? What is in my hands? A guitar. Okay. I just wanted to get like how you identify, like we all kind of have that when we're playing music. Yeah. It's like, who do you, who are you if you close your eyes and imagine yourself Mm -hmm. making music? It's like, I'm at the guitar. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, my start in music was super early. I got my first guitar, I think when I was in like first grade Mm. and it was like a small red kind of knockoff kind of, I think it was like a Strat. Mm-hmm. And um, I got it for Hanukkah. Nice. Remember what greatest. night it was? Oh, it was <laughs> like four. it took up many nights. <laughs> yeah. It was like the biggest gift yeah, I had gotten. Yeah. This is the next six life. nights. This is like this is like age five getting like yeah wow. like your Hanukkah present for this year is some chocolate and your guitar. Okay. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I took lessons from a guy named Howard. Had would... you been advocating for to get one? Well. The funny thing is, even before I got the guitar, I had this weird thing. I used to put on Michael Jackson tapes of, like, the black and white album, like, where the thing about my baby that don't matter if you... With with fucking Slash playing the guitar part. Mm -hmm. And I used to just dance around my living room. (laughs) Like, like just spin around in circles. I don't know what happened. It's like that John Mayer, Dave Chappelle skit. Where he's like, I don't know, guitar just makes white people dance. Yeah, yeah. Even at age five, at an incomprehensible level, the guitar still made me dance. <laughs> and um, and so I think that they like. Rec- I also really liked. I like would my dad had a record player, and I would just like go through his record collection and put on stuff. And I remember finding Eric Clapton's Cream record, like the one with "Sunshine of Your Love," and hearing that. F- first guitar rick and i was like i want to be able to do that and then and then my dad like had guitars sitting around so like i could kind of i didn't know what to do but i could like play on them and um so those were some like pretty pivotal moments and i think i was telling you about um that older guy, Dan Ingberman, who I started a project called Crooked Flower with in, I guess, what was it, like 2011 we started that project? And he was one of my dad's best friends in Missouri. He was like a WashU economics professor, and he had a studio in his basement. And when I was that age, that same age that like 
I was like hearing Eric Clapton and being like, what is that? I want to learn that. And hearing Michael Jackson be like, what are these grooves? He invited me over, like my dad and I over to his house to jam. And I, he let me like play on the drums. He let me play on the guitars. He was just like, he didn't have kids. He just was like, cool. Your kid seems really interested in music. And I remember that day very, is very vivid to me. And I like, it's crazy. Cause like, you know, 12 years after that moment, 13 years after that moment, I like started a band with this guy in his studio in Berkeley. Mm. And like, we ended up having like being like prolific artists and like, we've made like eight records together and like did a bunch of cool shit. But it's kind of funny because he was there at, he, at that time that I had that initial spark. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, did you take um, lessons throughout childhood? Yeah, I had I had my first guitar teacher was a guy named Howie, and Howie was hilarious because I used to think he was super rich because he had a big-ass wallet, but really he just had a bunch of receipts and bullshit <laughs> in there, and I would be like, Dad, he's so rich, right? And he taught me Sunshine of Your Love, okay. and then he taught me Bad to the Bone. Nice. And that was my first song that I ever performed was Bad to the Bone in my like first grade assembly about confidence. Okay. Which was kind of cool because it's like I got up on this table <laughs> yeah. in sunglasses and in the first grade and did bow now 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 and and it's funny because I teach the, that's like one of the first things that I like to teach kids because it's really easy and it gives them confidence right and so like that's like the thing that you need to keep going with it when you first start is you got to feel like you accomplished something when you did it. I mean, that's the genius of that song is both its simplicity, but then also it's like such an irrefutable message. Oh yeah. Like everybody (laughs) wants to like be bad to the bone, you know, like (laughs) to the core. Yeah. It's, it's a good, good message. And it, and and it was just funny that that was the context of my first show was just mm. like this assembly at my little school about you just playing solo. I think there was a saxophone player and then everyone else sang bad. Were you singing also? No, I was just playing guitar. I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't do both at the same time. That was still like a right kind of thing. Rubbing your tummy. Yeah. The, uh, what was I going to say? The um, Do you remember, like, when you were taking these lessons and stuff, were your parents, like, pushing lessons on you? Or was it something that was totally, like, your choice that you were pushing for? Oh, it, I definitely enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't ever a battle. Music okay. lessons were never a battle between me and my parents. That was, like... It almost, like, as I got older, my dad started trying to go to my guitar lessons with me, and he would sit in in the lessons just because he would want to play, and I ended up having to, like, be like, Dad, you have to leave now, <laughs> because now you're taking Mark's attention, right. and then I get less out of it. Get and your I own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get your own. But there was something special about that, and I think that, you know, for him and his life and what he was going through, that time that we had together was, like, really special to him. Mm. And, like, so at the time, I... I I didn't really understand why that was, but like retroactively, I'm like, oh yeah, that was like some of his favorite father-son bonding time was on Monday nights, we ditched my mom and my sister and him and I just would drive down to Manchester Road to Fazio's Frets and Friends, which still <laughs> exists, believe nice. it or not. And, um, and yeah, that was where it would happen. Would you guys jam together? Yeah, we would learn songs together sometimes. It mostly like, I mean... Mind you, there was a lot of lessons without him sometimes, you know, just like, but like 
when he would come, we would like learn, like I remember one of the ones we learned was like Stormy Monday and he mm-hmm. would learn the chords and I would learn the melody. And so, yeah, that was, that was special. And like my, my dad definitely pushed me towards music and my mom definitely did not. And she like, was like, uh, you should be doing some business stuff too. And you should be doing like whatever other things that can generate money outside of music because music can't pay your bills mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically the message yeah i remember you telling me she wanted you to be a lawyer yeah and and honestly i wanted to be a lawyer because i had that voice really loud in my head i was like you can do this and you could do this if this is what you want and it's definitely a path i could walk but at the end of the day it just wasn't i guess it just didn't pull pull me hard enough and and it's funny because so I'm 30 and I believe my mom is 64 and she recently came out to California like two months ago and I brought her up to Mendocino and we were hanging out and she there was guitars on the wall and I handed her a guitar and she played a bunch of songs and sang a bunch of songs really and I had no idea that like my mom never once picked up a guitar in the house when I was, when we were like, my mom and dad were together and like, it was just the most bizarre thing. Yeah. And she was with her like high school best friend who like totally knew her as the musician, Hmm. but she basically hid it from me my entire life until that moment. Why do you think she did that? That happened like that? Because she was afraid that I would like follow my journey, but <laughs> apparently it was pretty much unstoppable. Yeah. <laughs> but it is interesting because people would ask me, Daniel, who, where did you get your music start? And I'd be like, Well, my dad, ha- you know, plays campfire chords and stuff, and like he loved music. But really, my mom was like a band leader and had like a little band, and she like was like particular about who she played with. She only let some girls sing with her, and like <laughs> only let some people play in- other instruments around her. Like, she- and she was the leader, and they were called Flower Power, and she never once mentioned it. Was your it- mom from Missouri as well? Mm-hmm. Born and raised. Okay, so it's kind of bizarre, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the the. Uh... It's always interesting to hear how people kind of get started with that and what the like relational dynamic is with, with parents and, you know, the, and, you know, as I'm sure you know, like my, I grew up like watching my dad on stage and my mom had her own little musical path, um, which has only blossomed, but that's cool. The sucky thing was like music was introduced to me as a chore. Ooh. So like, Yeah, well, playing music at least. Like, yeah. Listening was a different thing, but like, I've struggled my whole life with like that early like psychological tag Ooh. of this being work and not play. Yeah, no, that's tough. It's that's uh, very tough. it's very difficult to break. And um, my brother, on the other hand, you know, just it's like his connection to the the divine or whatever. You know, that's what he tr- describes it like having a cup of tea. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how those like initial moments when music is being introduced to you for the first time have like lasting impacts on your entire approach to music, right? Like looking at it like as though it's a chore that needs to be done as opposed to like the source of joy. Right. Like for me, it was just like, 
um, I need some happiness. There's my guitar. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go in and try to play "Sunshine of Your Love." Right. Like, and I would close the door, and no one would be around. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it's for yourself. Yeah, it was like it was hypnotizing almost for myself. Yeah, yeah, I found that with like more recently, like with bass. I've yeah. probably said this on the show before, but like years, like I played keyboard for years and like really struggled and like really like learned on stage. Yeah. Which, you know, is one way to do it. I don't it's, necessarily yeah, it's recommend definitely it. One it's, way. it's definitely It was stressful one way. and it was embarrassing a lot of times because I'd make a lot of mistakes, but um, I had such a deep and like painful emotional connection with the keyboard. I always was like, never felt like I was good enough. I just felt like it was an uphill battle. I was always comparing myself to like where my brother had gotten. Yeah, that's tough. And I remember when I did my trip to India like four years ago, five years ago now, well, um, I bought a, like a super shitty guitar while I was traveling. I was like, yeah, like I got plenty of time. I'm like polishing coconuts and whittling on the beach. Like I might as well like just, pick up a guitar and start you know like no pressure yeah just see what see what i can do and uh so i got this like total like i think it it was like a th- uh three thousand rupees which i think came out to around like 60 bucks or something like that and but it was like i just was sitting on the beach and there was no judgment there was no like other musicians around like i was just like like you were describing, like it was just joy. It was just fun. And I wrote like seven songs and I sang and I like, like it, I I think like growing up in the Bay and growing up around like so many like incredible talented musicians, like so many of like my friends are so talented. It's like, sometimes it's like hard to get outside of that shadow of like, Oh yeah. You know, like, damn, these guys are so good. (laughs) Like what can I I do that can possibly be worth, you know, being shared and and then getting out and away from it all suddenly i was like so amazed like oh i do have a voice i do have something to say and to sing and also like i was like traveling around i was like i'm actually like i'm all right like i don't suck like these people i'm like was like playing my songs for people and watching people connect with the music and the lyrics and and it was this really like kind of powerful moment of of validation and then you know, coming back pretty quickly. I kind of sunk back yeah. into like that, that, that negative mindset. Yeah. And then, uh, but then the bass, then I, you know, was going up on the river and, you know, to Beaumont's river cabin. And we yeah. just were having these like epic all night jams and started getting to play the bass and just was like, Oh yeah. Like funk is like what I love. It's what I love to play. Like, I For feel sure. like I have this understanding of it cause I've listened to so much of it and just trusting my ear and not like worrying so much about playing the perfect form with the perfect technique or like having all this theoretical knowledge att- attached to my playing. Like yeah, I really I was just, back. yeah, I was just focused on like what feels good. That's the What's most important part playing. about the bass yeah. is what feels good. And I, yeah, I feel that. Yeah, and just I think the bass is so amazing. Like one of the, what I love about the bass is like I realized like pretty early on like I'm not necessarily like 
defining myself as like this is going to be this professional music. Like I'm not like hanging everything on my music in my life. Sure. And I know plenty of people that are, so I know what that looks like mm-hmm. and how much drive that takes and how much like discipline and effort. And, and I have a lot of respect for that, but I also like really want to make music with those people. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun to play with people that are really good. Yeah, of course. And play with people, you want to be the worst one in the room when you're right. playing with people. It's like sports, right? You want to, you want to play with people that are better than you. And it was an instrument that I felt like bass was my first instrument. Mm-hmm. I picked it up in seventh grade to learn Rage Against the Machine songs. Sick. Little and my, my bass player was like trying to teach me like Larry Graham and like all the music that I love now is what yeah. he was trying to teach me back then. But You're I was like, like, no way. This but I was cool. like, I just want to play like some Rage tunes, maybe some Zeppelin or, you know. <laughs> and uh, and now I'm like looking back, I'm like, damn, I wish I had like kept at that. But But my point being that like, Bass was something that I was like, oh, I can slide into this and like, I'm still going to have to work at it, but I can like participate and contribute to like, like music to me is always like, yeah, the, there's like the spiritual side of it, the emotional side of it. But like what attracts me most about playing music is doing it with other people. Like, yeah, I love playing in a band. I love playing in like a social setting where like I'm talking to people through music and the the bass is just this really fun instrument to yeah. play that's simple and a lot of it is like about listening yeah i mean every instrument is every like, instrument is and every instrument is simple and yet has a world of knowledge within it which right. is the interesting thing it's like a lot of people label the bass as being simple but it's totally. like it just depends on how deep you get right no you and you, and you're so right. i don't know the one thing that i i was thinking about as you're talking about this cuz i think that you like Everyone, everyone needs to remember this. That it, and Jer, this is a Jerry Garcia quote. It's be the only, don't be the best at what you do. Be the only one that can do what you do. Mm. And like I have always followed that because, and going back to our theme of Star Wars, there's always a bigger fish. <laughs> yes, and yes. so it's not about being the best musician in any scenario. Like I've been the best musician in a lot of situations and i've been the worst musician in a lot of scenarios and like the most important and like deep thread that needs to come together in both of those scenarios is just like the joy and meditation and beauty in which you both connect with others and connect with yourself so it's like you know i look at it like cicadas in missouri in the summertime for Mm -hmm. pleasure they just rub their mandibles together and it makes sound based off of temperature or or sex drive or whatever and it's like these things are for pleasure a lot of them and that's what music a lot of it is and so like trying to like stay in touch with that thread as opposed to seeing things that are really flashy because for all the flash the only thing that really matters from that flash is the emotion behind it Mm mm-hmm Everything else is just. Yeah. And I think it's really good for the brain to have pursuits that don't have an end point. You know, like you said, like, like I described bass as simple, but that's kind of, I think what I had to define it as to make it accessible for me, because it's like, I look at any instrument and it's like, man, there's such a wealth of things to know about this. (laughs) And there's always things that you can be better at. Yeah. And bass is no exception. Like the 
but I had to like kind of conceptualize it like that to feel like I could have the confidence to go out and play totally. and to put time in and to get like a result back that I could like feel like I could hang with, you know, for sure. Cause you want to be part, like so many of my friends are musicians and not being able to play with them. It's like, I'm missing out on a huge part of their life. Yeah. And I want to be a, able like to a fun activity. It's like a fun, this activity. is all like with the <laughs> obvious thing aside, which is yeah. the music that you get to make, yeah. which is like, that has its own. I mean, that's but psychologically for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I feel like I, I played bass in high school, just like, very casually i played in one rock band and i really like didn't understand what my role was Mm. i basically the whole thing was oriented around well if i was taking a guitar solo what would i want the bass player to be playing that was how i approached it Mm -hmm. and it was way too busy and way too much and then like when i got in a band with that multimillionaire dan uh his style was unique and it didn't leave space, I felt, at the time, for me to do what I do on guitar. Mm. So what did I do? I was like, you know what? I don't even want to exist in the same sonic zone as you. Let me play bass. And and so I did that as a way of like coping with his uniqueness. Okay. And then look at where it's led me. Right. <laughs> right? So it's... Where where has it led you? Let's. I let's, have no uh... idea. Where am I? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> oh jeez. Yeah, I think like I had a similar experience, which is like, you know, I think like talented musicians can be really incredibly critical and judgmental, yeah. and they lo- especially like jazz musicians just love to talk shit and oh, love yeah. to talk about That's like, like the stereotype what they like don't like in music and so like coming up i had like both from my brother and from other friends like i got so much i heard so much about like their takes on like what they liked and didn't like in players and especially like with the bass like so often i would hear really busy players we're very talented who are like doing amazing things. But like to me coming into the bass, like the music I like to play is totally tied in with dancing. Like what I want to see when I look out is people dancing, like, like uncontrollably, uncontrollably. Like if I, if nobody's dancing, like we're not playing the right song. We're not playing it, the song, right. You know? Yeah. And so like thinking about like, and this is one of the things that I love about the instrument is like when you listen back to your favorite music or, you know, the pop hits of old or whatever, you know, I I like, like my favorite music tends to be from like 67 to 76, like that golden decade of, of sounds of recording. A lot of those songs, the bass is a very simple part. It's very tasteful. It's like supporting the song. Uh, It's not like, a million notes and it's in the pocket with the drummer. And it's like this very like important support support role. And a lot of my favorite songs that I love to dance to, you know, the, the bass plays this major role, but it doesn't need to be everywhere. Yeah. And so I know like when I'm sitting down to play with people, like one thing that I love to do is like, listen to like what the guitar player is doing, what the keyboard player is doing. And then I'll, you know, there's this, I think there's this instinct to like want to play 
like the same part that you hear other people playing. Like I've been in bands before where we have like three musicians playing the same riff. Sure. And that's just, to me, is kind of like nails on the chalkboard if you do it too much. Yeah. So like I'll try to like pull out like half the notes. Yeah. And just what can I play? How can I say what I need to say with five words with two words or with sure. three words, you know? That's definitely a good approach to playing, you know, and and not overplaying, right? Right. That's the other thing is there are, I see so many people who are incredible musicians who play the bass. And I'm like, when they play, you're like, what are they saying with all those notes? Mm-hmm. Are they saying anything? This is where, like, I feel like the the greats are really great. Is like, when you listen to Jamerson, when you listen to Carol Kay, when you listen to Leland Sklar, when you listen to Bobby Vega, and you listen to these, like, guys that played in Muscle Shoals and, like, all these great recordings, it's like... The thing is, is the they they push the bass to the point of it being a melody, and not a note further. And it's like this dance that they do, where it's like, how busy can the bass line be without it being too busy, mm-hmm. right? And so nowadays, I feel like there are very few players who really have that like refinement of knowing how much bass is too much bass, and knowing like how to take those two notes and play a lot of notes in between without it messing things up, you know? And, and like, I think that like your idea about picking, basically trying to find what the guitar or whatever the other instrumentation is playing and finding a more simple way to phrase that is like a really, really great place to start because ultimately that's, what's going to help the entire song. sell. Right. That's the thing that's going to make the vocal melody be more understood. That's the thing that's going to help the emotion of the song move, you know? And, and so like, that's the, that's the balance, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, yeah, everything you just said, super right on. I think like playing in like a live hip hop band too, for years, like everything was parts Mm -hmm. and like having done like, music production before that have ma- having made beats yeah like understanding how like a guitar track relates when you're trying to make like a composition sure uh and then doing that trying to do that in a live context and doing it on a piano like i wasn't a huge shredder soloist piano player i was just playing these little like simple parts sure that fit in with like what the bass was doing what my brother was doing it on guitar often we had two guitar players so sure um so pulling back you know it, it kind of lent itself and i was already starting to play keyboard bass too and really loving like the bass lines were some of my favorite That's parts cool. of the music and uh it just you know it made it like really fun when when i stepped on the step back on the bass but um yeah dude well so when was it music that brought you from Missouri to California? Well, actually, you know, kind of, kind of like it's weird. I like if I was like going to appease my mom, I was going to become an attorney. And I was like, but if I'm going to follow my dreams, it's going to have to do with music. So mm-hmm. I'll be a, a music industry attorney. And so that was my whole thing. And I was like, well, I might as well go to school out in California. That way I start to build the connections and the network and the all the stuff. So that was kind of what brought me 
like the idea of eventually moving to LA, but I like my dad had just moved to the Bay area like eight months before I did. And so it was kind of like, okay, well I know that I got my dad to fall back on if I can't figure out a plan, but I really didn't have a plan other than go to school Mm. and music was not, I wasn't like, Hey, I'm going to start a band. It was like when I got to California, my dad was like, Hey, Daniel, you should go meet up with this guy, you know, Dan, you know, from your childhood who I hadn't seen in since like those, those, like that would, those were my images of him. Like I didn't see him at all really throughout my childhood, except for when I went over to his studio space. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so my dad's like, you should go over and talk to Dan. Dan's got work for you. And I was like, all right, I'm like 19 years old. I'm a college student. I don't have a job. I just moved to a new place. This guy's a millionaire, lives in the Berkeley Hills. Sure. I'll go like scope it out. And I go over there and basically we just jammed (laughs) all day. Like talked about music, smoked some herb and uh, hung out and just like had a really great day. And then at the end of the day, he was like, do you want to come back tomorrow? And I was like, well, he's like, I'll, I'll pay you for your time. And he's like, (laughs) and I was like, uh, okay and then he like named the price that he was willing to pay yeah. and i was like it was more money than i had ever gotten at any other job in missouri because <laughs> we're in the bay right, so, right. I was, yeah. so i was like uh yeah that sounds good i'll be here yeah, what time yeah. and he's like i don't know what time works for you and yeah. i was like uh noon yeah and he's like great see you at noon and then i would just go over there and and um yeah we would just make tons of experimental music with tons of really fancy gear that's dope. Yeah, it was hilarious. We had and you get time. paid to do it. That's... And we got paid to do it. And so from that, I built out Crooked Flower, which was like my first California band that like we did like seven records or something. It's There's a lot. We did so much recording and music because mm-hmm. that, that band was definitely more of like a studio band than a mm-hmm. live band. We like performed like 11 times, but recorded like seven albums. Was that the band that did Orange Moon? Yeah. Yeah. How did you know that? Because I edited one of your guys' videos. Whoa! <laughs> did you really? Yeah, what? I was a, I was a Evan, uh, like subcontracted it out to me. Like that's hilarious. I didn't know that. I, I it did. was not the highest quality music. <laughs> it wasn't the highest quality video either. Yeah, <laughs> it was I, a lot of like, I didn't shoot any of it, but it was a lot of like. Uh, I didn't even know if that mo- that ever got out. It was out. like all this stock B roll footage, and then like, I think like. I don't know what the camera was that it was shot on, but it wasn't like the highest grade. And then I was just like editing layers in and it was like super goofy. (laughs) That's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah, So, so yeah, basically Dan had a lot of resources Mm -hmm. and really loved music and felt like that was his way of um, putting it out. And I was like the conduit to like help elevate it to a professional level, which in ways I was, in ways I wasn't, but mm-hmm. I did the best that I could given the skills that I had. And, you know, it's like I look at my peers and they all went to music school at that time. And I went to business school. And where were you going to business school? At Cal State East Bay. Like okay. I got, and I ended up getting my degree in legal studies with a minor in business. And so, like, I basically, if at any point I was like, all right, in this process, I would rather do the safe lawyer thing. I could because I had the background to do it. Right. But then as that part of the process was happening, that's when like D- he, Dan really upped the ante and we got re- recording contracts. We like hired a professional producer wow. and like, we like, it became like a 
five day a week full time gig. Wow. Just playing and writing and working on music as a band, which was like unheard of. Right. right? That's no, like, that's like the that's like the gig that I know. You know, musicians. I, right. Dream it about. seems like the dream. Right. Yeah. And and in ways it was the dream. Yeah. And in ways it was not the dream at all, both for interpersonal reasons, mm-hmm. for musical reasons. Creative reasons. Crea- yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, but like in retrospect, like that was an amazing experience. Most musicians will never experience that. So like after that project ended or like stopped it, like I got just like dropped off in the music scene. It was just like, uh, I played in this band for like the last like six years. We did like six albums. Like I know how to make great records and I know what good music sounds like, but I have no gigs. And like, I basically had to like start from scratch and build out how to rebuild yourself as like a successful artist musician. And I did that through playing lots of free shows with new bands that I didn't know Mm -hmm. through like, Hired gun work. Yeah, like a lot of stuff like that. And um, I'm doing a lot of just a lot of stuff for free because I was like willing to try it. Mm. And then fortunately, it ended up like unfolding in a way that like led me to a lot of opportunities. That was it, was it hard to make that transition from like it was making br- good money, it was playing music to suddenly being like the experience I, that I most was on musicians, my ass. Yeah. I, I basically I had like four acres in Castro Valley I had like a dope recording studio called the goat shed. It was like sick. And I went from that to basically living in my godfather's basement, mm. which was sick yeah. also in its own way, because it was my first time living as an adult, like essentially with no rent, mm-hmm. you know, because they understood they're like, yo, this is a big transition. You're like 24. You need to like, like we got you mm-hmm. while you figure out your shit. And then from there, I just, like, that's when I was, like, gigging for free. I met, like, Jeremy Lyons and Zach and, like, that whole crew and just kind of, like, expanded and expanded and expanded until I had enough things on my time card that, like, there was some credibility there. And and then I realized that actually none of that shit was exactly what I wanted to do and that I wanted to do a solo record because I just was, like, in the shadows on the side playing bass. And I was like, that's no way to be a prolific artist. So so were you playing bass and all the, at, during this whole time? Yeah, because okay. once I made that weird transition with Dan, <clears throat> it was like I had that same thing that you did, which is like, well, bass seems more straightforward, and I think I'm, like, pretty good at it, and I don't think I overplay, which is, like, cool. And I think that that's what got me a lot of gigs because of what I didn't play, Well, ba- bass players definitely get more work. That's that. I think that's a truism about the. Yeah, I mean, everybody needs a bass player. Everybody right? needs a, a good of, bass player. There's everybody a lot of guitar good. players out there. Yeah, and everybody needs a good bass player. Like, there's a lot of not good bass players, and it makes the music have much less chutzpah. It's just like, yeah, where's the? You gotta have that chutzpah. The, uh, you gotta sure. have the chutzpah. <laughs> it's all about that. So, what was it like? You know, if we're thinking about this time as like an era, was there like a like a band that you got into or a project you got on that like signified the end of that era of uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, there was, Oh, well, I mean, the uncertainty prevails, but like, was there one band? I'm trying to think. I feel like, no, the thing was, is I went from making all my money with one project to making all of my money from like 10 mm-hmm. or 11. And it was very sporadic. And like, were you surviving solely from music at this time? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So no day gig or anything. It was just like trying to play and practice as much as I can because I had made this decision to not go to law school. And so it was like either – and I was like, I don't want to go to law school until I've made a solo album. And then through the process of making my solo album, like it's like I collaborated with all these different artists that either I had worked with and written with in the past or I wanted to work with. And like Adrian being one of them, like so she's on my solo album on mm-hmm. the song H2O that we wrote together. And that was like the first song that led to that. And so like through the process of me growing as an individual, it caught the attention of more things and led me down a, a path that like led me to wanting to be like, I don't want to do this whole music thing alone. So maybe a partnership is like a partnership with someone that like I get to choose and someone that like brings things to the table that I don't necessarily have would be the most solid move. And so then that then that's what kind of developed into Speakeasy. Okay. And was Speakeasy like the first after that solo album was that like the first like band that you were like part of that was like more than just like a gig here a gig there? Or? Um well, not really. I feel like I mean, because what, what year is this, by the way? This Let's... is this is probably two thousand and sixteen, two thousand seventeen. Okay, I think my solo record came out in two thousand eighteen, which means I think it was like idealized. Uh, it, it became it became like a, a clear, concrete vision in like two thousand sixteen, and then two thousand seventeen we recorded it, and two thousand eighteen it came out. Um, but. I, I had another band that my roommate, my current roommate, Zach Mendel Roman, uh, started called Rubber Tramp. And basically what he did is he just wrote a shit ton of cool material and then called people that either he made music with in the past or uh, new people, me being one of those new people. And like I came to the first band practice. I was like, this material is really good. I really like this. It was hard. Mm-hmm. And I remember like everyone, even though there was no money involved or anything, I just was like, whoa, this is the shit. I really like this model. Like basically it's easy to to get a group together if you have material. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't have material and you're like, hey, let's just like jam, know, man. Just, just, just jam. jam. Yeah, let's just jam without like a clear and focused goal. Yeah then it doesn't attract amazing musicians. What does attract amazing musicians is amazing, well-written music. And so I quickly realized through that, and that was like in that window where I didn't have anything, and then I met Zach, and then I started playing with Rubber Tramp, and then that became a band, that I was like, hmm, I could do that with my own music that I write. And then like basically at that time, Adrian and I kind of had been just like writing songs just for fun, and then it was like, well, we should make a record. We could fucking for sure, or we should make an EP was the original plan. It ended up becoming a whole record. But yeah, and that was the model. Basically write and arrange a bunch of material. And like I kind of handpicked every single musician. Like I handpicked Ryan Schaefer. I knew Ryan was the guy. I knew Brandon was the guy. And then Ryan was like, I got a keyboard guy. And I was like, he's talking about Ian McArdle. And because they have Puff Puff Beer together. He's so talented. And and so Ian recorded our first record with us. And yeah. And then that kind of developed into its own little yeah. thing, which became part of my story, you know. Yeah. So was Ian play? Did Ian play on the first album that you mm-hmm. guys did? Okay. 
and then Javi's been a more recent addition. Yeah, Javi Javi was like I was like an Instagram fanboy of Javi uh-huh. and then I met him in I can't remember. We had some like corporate tech event. So I felt really good. I was like, I could hire Javi. Javi would be good because he would be down because it pays a lot of money Mm -hmm. and he can get to know us. And then I met Javi and I quickly, quickly realized, A, this is one of the most talented musicians I've ever met in my life. And B, this is also the most chill kind he's so humble for how humble person that you would ever meet. Yeah. You would never know it like I you know I know. Because he's so like just kind of just chill and modest. I'm a big, and laid I'm a big back. hobby fan. And then you see him sit at the piano and you're just like, that's different than mm-hmm. I've seen. Like mm-hmm. that's he's such a beast. I'm I, the quintessential image that comes to mind for me was what we had like our backyard oh boogie my party. God, that was out a couple months ago and like all the honey drops boys that are like you know, I'll They're say very particular snobs, about what snobs. they love, no, you okay. know, and uh, I love them. Love all Javi and I rolled up to that party. But you guys rolled up and then it was late night. We turned off all the amplified music like around midnight to try to appease our neighbors they, who were very chill. And uh, he sat down on the piano uh, that we had in the in the yard and he just started making like the most beautiful jazz. Oh. And I just saw all the boys like, kind of just like look over and their jaws just kind of drop a little bit. And they were all just kind of gathered around the piano, you know? And it's like the way I've seen about those guys is when they find like a, a new musician that's, you know, that's got it or whatever. Yeah. Then it's just like this, like, you know, everybody gets really excited and it's like, Oh, well, Javi's Javi's also, you know, he's beyond exceptional. Totally. Like, there's no, there's no it, people it, like that. Yeah. It just was a funny, it was a cool I, moment. And then they sang you know? sweet Lorraine. Yeah. And, and, they, they, and then these... they played another two hours of like, Oh, mellow. Jazz I know Javi and, and I showed up that sounds. night and we were like, we're going to be here for like till midnight. Right. And Javi's like, yeah, I don't want to be here past midnight. I was like, okay, I got you. We'll be out of here. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that moment happened like with like Lesh popping out and like getting on the drums mm-hmm. and then, and then, like, Lolo just kind of, like, sitting next to Javi, just like, <laughs> uh, what are you playing? And then, and then, and then it just, like, and I, like, somewhere along that, after a few songs, I, like, texted Javi. I was like, yo, FYI, we're going to be here until 4 a.m. They're going to go until yeah, they'll, you're done. They'll rinse so you out. So you tell me when you're ready <laughs> yeah, to leave. Yeah. I'm down to, I just didn't want to say it yeah, in front of everyone. I just totally. was like, Javi, these guys will go until the yeah, sun rises if guys, you keep playing. Yeah, those guys And I'm not trying to do incredible that. incredible music stamina. It's, it's unlike anyone. They're dude, the, the Honey Drops are a crazy band because they will play a three-hour show. Then they'll go to a house and play another four hours like and it's not like a it's not like they feel like they have to it's like that's what they want to do yeah they're like what else am i supposed to do (laughs) this is all i know how to do why wouldn't we you know why wouldn't we just do yoga and have a quiet (laughs) meditation hour (laughs) yeah no it's 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 amazing and it's you know it's it's been cool getting to know you know i know for me I was aware of your guys' band. I I think my brother played a show with you. Yeah, guys. I had to- I had Tonester come yeah, and sit in and, for our first album release. Yeah, and he was uh he had good things to say. He had fun, and uh, I forget why I couldn't make it. I think I was out of town or something. But but then you guys asked me, you know, back in December, I think, if I wanted to work on a on a music video with you guys, and uh, that's kind of where I feel like I really got to know you guys all better was you know we we all went to this little house in Gualala up north on the Cali coast and uh 
and I just kind of got thrown into this like artist retreat weekend that you guys had designed. And it was just like tons of amazing food and all these different creative people in a, this little all house. And I was just showed up with my video gear. I was like, all right, like you were going to try to make something. This and your weekend. drone, dude. Yeah. And you got that drone footage from way up where the you drone the footage. Ocean. I was like this place. I could, you know, I feel safe flying my drone and, um, and then, you know, it was like, it was a cool process for me because I, it like my major breakthrough that weekend was like, I think up until then, you know, I'm in my, I'm in like my fourth year as a videographer mm-hmm. and you know, when, when you first start out on any technical like trade, it's magic in the beginning. Like you see what people make and you're like, I want to make that, but it's like mystical. Yeah. You're like, I don't know how to like do that yet. You know, I don't know, even know how to use this device really, but I'm going to just like learn by doing it, you know, and learn by YouTube in it. And like, I've gotten to know my camera, but I was still like, when I showed up very, it was like dependent on things like the light gauge on my camera and like you know, my camera, I showed up on the Friday on the first night and my camera was telling me that everything was underexposed and, but I just shot a bunch of test footage anyways of you guys jamming and playing. And the next day I remember like I I started watching it on my laptop and I was like, this all looks fine to me. Like this looks great. I'm just going to go with, I'm going to ignore what the camera's telling me and I'm going to, trust what my eyes are telling me sure and and it was my first time lighting a set and it was like the perfect house to like freestyle a set light because like you know the the house was like these uh like party boys friends of adrian's (laughs) right and like every cupboard had like disco lights and different panels and onesies remember that closet of the closet of onesies and you know the garage there was tons of like condoms and lube like industrial size jugs and so like i was really like you guys were in the middle of music mode and i couldn't even believe like the productivity like you guys did eight songs in one day nine songs in one day and we did two videos and we did two videos and so like I I pretty much just, and this has kind of been my process with videography in general, but just there's like a real intuitive thing about it. Like I still, I need to get way better at this like major growth area for me, but I've like never really made a storyboard. Yeah. Uh, So like a lot of it was just me shooting with my camera on my gimbal, just moving around the room, trusting my eye, trusting your ear. You would listen to it and be like, who are the soloists? Who's got the dramatic parts of the song? Like all those musical elements that we were talking about earlier and being in tune to that, I think really made the video come out really nice. Awesome. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it was a, it was a really fun process to be in the midst of all these talented musicians creating like art that they really cared about. And then I was like there, you know, apart from certain elements, but also there to like kind of represent it in this visual art and document it and try to like, at the same time, like imbue my own creative essence onto the, to the work. And everybody, you guys were all so like gracious and welcoming. I felt right at home and 
just throughout the weekend had these like amazing conversations with yeah. your, with you, with Brandon, with Javier, like, you know, Ryan's like my boy. I, know, I, I, I love Ryan. that dude. Like I don't get to see him enough. You know, yeah, he's like exactly. one of those people that every time we, uh, we are hanging out, I'm like the shafester, you know, I know Ryan's good vibes. Like I just go into a corner with him and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, he's just one of those people I love so much, but, uh, but I really felt like I, I left the weekend with this like intense, I was like high off of it. Like it felt like a stepping stone moment in like my growth as an artist. And then also just being connected to a bunch of new people, friends. And, and yeah. uh, it, so it's been really cool. It was a really cool way to like learn about a band. Yeah. We loved yeah. having you. That was a good time. We had some good, fun late night conversations. Yeah, dude. Oh, for sure. No doubt. Watching, we what we watched like Y two K, with some other music going. Yeah, what it was it? Uh, it was funny. Who was it over that? Was it like it was like P J Morton or it was like some R and B? It was like some neo soul shit that we put over. Like you know, for those of you that don't know what like it was like C two Y two K. It's it's like basically like a, a more obscure skater bro version of Jackass from around the same time. Um, and, uh, you know, so that multimedia mix was very interesting, but, uh, so like, how did you, how did you end up playing with like Cone Brio? Oh shit. So yeah, that's a cool story. So I threw rubber tramp. Okay. Uh, which is my band with, my roommate Zach and Jeremy Lyon and Kevin Coleman and Tracy. Oh, Kevin Coleman's in that band. Yeah, Kevin. Dude, I love Kev. Kev is he the shit. he like was our was one of our like favorite backup drummers. Dude, for, Kevin is when we had so the hip hop project. He'd come in. He just has such a clean pocket. He and plays, he's like, super sweet. And he's super chill. He's yeah. super sweet. I love Kevin. He's, he's the man. Um, and he was not actually the original drummer, but as soon as our, the drummer moved to L.A., I was like, hey, guys, I got this awesome guy who's badass has the best attitude is mm-hmm. super sweet no drama just awesome kevin coleman um anyway so pat glenn the keyboard player for combrio would come and play with rubber tramp because they jeremy zach and pat had a band called the tumbleweed wanders Never, yeah which they like played the fox opening for they toured a bunch opening for jackie green like and um and so I met Pat, and Pat is a huge Star Wars nerd. And nice. I don't know if you know this about me, but I also am a huge Star Wars nerd. And so yeah, we we, do, we briefly <laughs> so, talked in the lawn, but I too am a huge. So so Pat and I immediately hit it off, and I was like, dude, we are gonna be friends for a long time. I can just feel it. And um, anyway, so so I got to know Pat. Right, some time goes by. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's I'm like, oh, he plays with Combrio. I've heard of Combrio. I've never seen a Combrio show, blah, 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 blah. But I knew that they were, like, pretty pretty popular. Mm-hmm. And um, That's kind of where my, just full disclaimer, that's, like, where I'm at. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Familiarity with the band. Um, so, so then I knew that Pat had told me that their, their bass player was also a super professional audio engineer, both live and studio audio engineer, as well as like an acoustic engineer. And he like went to Duke and he's really, you know, he just like, he knows his shit. And he, he would like be their sound engineer while he was on stage. He was amazing and run all their monitors. Wow. And he was just like multitasking, yeah, playing bass in the engineering world. 
in like the the whole configuration of their setup like they have a sophisticated in-ear monitor setup that he designed like it's he's Kirch is amazing anyway so um I, at the time i was playing with this super dope singer songwriter r&b guy named austin prince and austin prince is like he like raps and sings he's he's sick and um we were playing a show opening for phony people in san francisco at the Mina Gallery. Have you ever been to the Mina Gallery? Yeah. It's like with the horses on the side of the stage. And, I've never. Um, been, I don't, I've never seen the venue, but I've definitely. I think my friend used to work there. Or his girlfriend used to work there. That's cool. Yeah. yeah so it's like this. This like random show, and Austin's like, "Man, I would really love to get like the show well recorded." And I was like, "Well, I know this guy who like is a super dope audio engineer that lives in San Francisco, and you know, could potentially do it. Do you want me to give you his number?" And so he came, did an unbelievably thorough and extensive job, like mixed it all, gave us all the mixes, like within like two days, they all sounded baller, like, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But after he saw me perform with Austin, he was like talking to me, he's like, huh, so you, I really like the way that you play bass. I was like, thanks, bro. That means a lot coming from you. You're the Mm -hmm. bass player, founder of Combrio. And he's like, hmm, you want to play some gigs with Combrio? And I was like... I thought he was joking. Yeah. He had like had a drink. I, I took him home that night. You yeah. know, like I drove him home. Uh-huh. Like, and and um, I thought he was just messing with me. Right. And then I didn't know all this backstory to his life at this point. And but I just before was like, we go any farther, yeah. can you just, for people that aren't familiar and for myself, like sure. what kind of music is Combrio? Can you just get a yeah, recap yeah. of what Combrio, that is? Combrio is like Bruno Mars... Tower Power and Nirvana in one band. So they get funky, they rock super hard, and their frontman does backflips and dances his ass off okay. and sings his ass off and like is a the consummate entertainer. Gotcha. Like costume changes, like like I said, backflips on stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um ama- he's an amazing dancer. Just like the best dancer that I've ever gotten to perform with. He's really, really a special and unique talent. Um, anyway, so I didn't think that much of it. You know, he asked me if I wanted to play some gigs in Combrio. And then um, I guess he, I didn't know this at the time that his wife was pregnant. And, and so I guess they had some sort of doctor's appointment and he had to miss this corporate event gig. So he gave me, he texted me, like with 10 days before the gig and was like, Hey, do you want to play this gig with Combrio? It pays this much. It's on this date. And I was just like, <laughs> I, I thought, I thought he was joking. Yeah, I thought he was joking. Yeah. And then, so then I, there's this story. I spent a hundred hours prepping for this Combrio gig, this first Combrio gig. I like kept a practice journal. Mm-hmm. I only had 10 days to learn like two hours of material. Wow. And it's like, this like very popular band and it's not like it just like wasn't straightforward you yeah, know what i mean oh, it totally. like took uh, like i had to make charts for everything were there a lot of like dynamics like hits tons of dynamics that's stuff. like yeah. it's like tower power like okay. it, it's it's the hits make the song yeah right you know and so i and no rehearsal no rehearsal no rehearsal damn that's rough so like i met some of them at the gig wow. okay so like and the gig was at DocuSign in front of 2,000 people. Okay. So it was like not not like the highest pressure. It's yeah, not like yeah, it was yeah. like Austin City Limits because right. it was still like a corporate event. But there was 
so many people there. And so basically this between March 1st and March 10th, which is when the gig is, I remember the exact date. I spent a hundred hours prepping for this gig, showed up to the gig. Actually, I remember we, they have like a sweet, sweet tour rig. And I like showed up and drove with the band, which is like my first, it like was like a whole experience. It was like, Oh shit. I'm like on the, in the tour bus with this band that I've never rehearsed with Mm -hmm. that I'm about to go play the show. Anyway, were you and, at a, fa- a fan at this time, or had no? I had really... never heard of them. Okay. I had, no, I'd I'd heard of them. Yeah. I had never listened to them. Gotcha. So like, I'd never even seen a Combrio performance. I had never seen. You had Zeke no idea perform. what you were in for. I just had seen like a couple YouTube videos, right. which but they were like studio stuff for the most part. Gotcha. And like that show went off so hard. Like I I have video footage from that show, and it's like basically the audience stormed the stage, hmm. which like for me as a bass player and like in that context like during like the last song of the sets like on stage dance party it's just like going off yeah i'm just like i can't even believe this is real uh-huh. and and um but i mean like stuff like that it's like a how'd, pretty wild how'd show. the show go for you with after all that oh i mean all things considered mm-hmm. like there was definitely no major like nothing train wrecked mm-hmm which I was very proud of. Yeah. Totally. I mean, cause there was like a lot of pressure. Dude, that's and a lot the best of, you can hope for in that situation. Of, yeah. And, and like, um, was it perfect? No, but like if I had to give myself a grade on it, I would say I probably got like an 88%. Okay. Like a 88. I know. I know. <laughs> right. I mean, but, but that was like a hundred hours. Like that was yeah. as good as I could have done it. Totally. Right. And so what that, was your process? Like, 10 hours a day for 10 days like um i would i would i would like break it up i wouldn't do 10 hours straight i mm-hmm. would do like a 4 hour morning session i'd go and do some other stuff yeah. and then i'd come back and have a 6 hour sh- session in the but evening but like how did you like did you work on certain songs on certain days did you work on every song i worked on every, on every song every day okay well i like basically first i went through all of the material so that way i at least had listened to everything mm mm-hmm. Which, of course, then we added songs that I didn't know right before the gig because of certain events and people running late. Then gotcha. like their manager worked out this deal. They're like, all right, so you didn't show up to this thing at 8.30 you were supposed to show up to this morning. But I talked to the booker, and if you play two more songs and play for a little longer, then they're all good. Uh-huh. And this, this all happened at the gig. Yeah. And so then they like come to me like, Daniel, what covers do you know? And I was like... <laughs> you know, because that moment, those moments, yeah. even though I'm like, I, I've been playing music at this point yeah. for a while. Yeah. Like, you're like, I know nothing. Yeah. I don't even. I've yeah, like covers? <laughs> like, songs besides the ones that I've been learning for yeah. the last hundred hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, we ended up doing. Um, Did they give you a set you want list me to stay? Um, yes, I believe so. Yes. So you were practicing the show. You had yeah. A, so, the show so Kirch, Kirch, amazing audio engineer, right? Yeah. He gave me. The live, basically uh, all the live tracks, and they do everything like the same, essentially the same way every night. Yeah. And so he gave me the tracks with his bass parts, and then he gave me isolated no bass tracks. Nice. And so basically I, first time I like went through, made chord charts. After I made chord charts, then I like started getting into more nuanced things, like what exactly is the bass playing? And then once I got into the bass playing... That's like where I stopped mm-hmm. needing the charts, and I ended up starting to get things memorized. You so know. most, so like you made the, ch- they didn't have charts for you then. No. Okay, so you made the charts, transcribed them or whatever, mm-hmm. and then you just went by ear after that. 
Yeah, pretty much just like listen to his bass parts. It's mm-hmm. it, I think he did like he maybe on certain songs that were like very integral parts where the chords were kind of confusing. I had him make bass up mixes as well yeah. so that way I could like really clearly hear what the lowest note is. Mm-hmm. But then small side note to this. Yeah. Later on, I would <laughs> I I went on the road with them for a while and it's like Ben and I like changed some a bunch of Kurtz's parts and like made them into like different funkier things. Yeah, that yeah. was like kind of fun because then it was like kind of felt like I was like, oh, I'm a part of this. Yeah, you know, totally. Like, you left your mark. I left my mark a little bit. I don't know. And so I don't. Know. It, ultimately, how long did you play? Did you tour with them? For? So so basically, what happened? I think it was like five. M- basically, no, not not even that much. It was probably a little less than that. It was from my, March until. Um, the end of July. So not really that long. Was that like four months? Yeah. And um, I think it was like thirteen gigs, all in different places. But the crazy part about the 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 like last half of of it was like so his wife was pregnant, and baby Miles ended up getting born early or prematurely, and so he was like scheduled to be out on the road, mm. and called me with like five days notice and was like, can you do like these like 11 gigs or something like that? So the 13 turned into 24? Something like that. Okay. And it was like, it, well, well, no, 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 no. It, this was, this was before I had only done one gig gotcha. at that point. And gotcha. he called me and was like, Hey, can you go on tour in five days for like a, like a week and then do all these other dates? And you know, when that happens, that's like, at the time I was like, okay, this is, you know, for a while, I was, like, really stoked that I had, like, the Crooked Flower stream, you know, steady income, mm-hmm. like, cool studio gig. This is, like, my live opportunity. Right. This is, like, the different spectrum because the music industry is really big, right? It's, like, live studio. A lot of Those niches, are... yeah. And so I was, like, this is it. And so, of course, I said yes. I moved everything around and learned, <laughs> like, another hour and a half's worth of material because they do a lot of different stuff on their, like, shows where they're, like, playing for like two hours are different than when they're just like an hour set and um you've also been a band for a long time so they have a lot of material and then um yeah so that led me down the combrio road which was a amazing road that i will always in and eternally look back at with so much gratitude and love and so you had to take a break from all your other projects at this time right to do that a little bit, you know, like the gigs were like mostly on the weekends. Okay. So like, you know, I had to bail on a few gigs, mm-hmm. but like, it wasn't like, it was like, yo, I'm a, I'm a fill in for this person while he's taking care of his, the needs of his wife and his child, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, I felt like an obligation to do that. And I thought totally. that that was like a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I, if I was in that situation, I would love to have someone who I could like fully trust to like not be a question mark on tour. You right, know, like right. the thing oh, that's is, important is for sure. yeah, it's like you invite someone in, they could be the greatest bass player, but if they're not good people, you're going to end up, the rest of your band's going to be like, fuck you. Right. You know, so there was like a big level of trust in the character. So would they just fly you out on the weekends to places? Pretty much. That was like how they did it. Like, were that, they the on band. tour going from place to place or were you? Well, so one what, a couple of the times, some people would drive out, mm-hmm. and then some people would fly out. Like, I wouldn't always be the only one that would fly. Sometimes, like, a couple people would fly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But then there was a lot of gigs that were just like, oh, we're just like flying to Sioux City, Iowa and playing this like big county fair. And like, you you know, you fly in on a Friday night, you play like a Saturday afternoon and leave Sunday morning. Mm. A lot of stuff like that. Which was also really exciting and fun. Yeah. And also I got food poisoning one time and it was not fun. Mm, yeah. <laughs> not That's kind of ruining your stripes on the tour though. Oh yeah. No. <clears throat> it's like you should try to, you know, be sick not on the airplane. Yeah. And I was like, I I think I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can edit that part out. I think I remember you telling me that story. Um that's awesome, dude. That must have been like such a validation, dude, too. Like you, this dream you're talking about, and now you're getting to play on these big stages. I know, and, and guess who was a big, like, check out what I'm doing, Mom. Right. Did she come to any of the shows? No, she still has like only seen me perform maybe like once. Okay. Which is crazy, right? I'm like yeah. 30 years old. My mom has seen me perform one time. Mm-hmm. I can't get her to come. She's like <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. If I don't... like. I think she came it was really funny. She I brought her to one speakeasy gig on a Halloween and it was in San Francisco and my mom's like flying out from Missouri. She's like, Oh, these crazy San Franciscans and like she basically tried to make it out like it was like she was like, Oh, I'm an I'm an old person at a young person party mm-hmm. but then there was all these older, crazy funny sf people that were older than her that were totally decked out and dressed up and i was like welcome to the scene yeah right (laughs) there's a space for you here too yeah exactly and so actually that's like one of my dreams too is to like basically go and this was going to happen but then the pandemic happened was basically be back home in missouri in my hometown playing like the fox theater which is like a big venue Mm-hmm. and being like, hey, mom, check out this gig. You used to go and see shows when you were a kid right. at this place, and now I'm here. But that never happened. Maybe it will happen soon. Yet. 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 It awesome. doesn't really matter. I don't really seek the validation of her anymore. I just, like, especially after I found out yeah, she's a musician, been, I'm like. Has that been hard, though? Like, not feeling like your your mom is necessarily, like, in support of oh, yeah. this path? It's, <laughs> it's definitely, like like, parents have there's something completely unique about the feedback that you get from your parents, Mm. right? They have seen you literally since day one, at least most of the time. Yeah. And if you're lucky lucky. and like, so when they tell you something about the way that they feel, even if whether it's good or bad, it hits you just a completely different way than some random person on the street or even like a friend. And so it's like, you know, this entire time it's been like my mom and my grandma kind of being like, so Daniel, when are you going to grow up and get your real job? And I was always like, what do you mean? Like, I'm I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, but you don't make very much money. How are you going to support a family? How are you mm-hmm. going to buy a house? How are you going to build a stable life for yourself? How are you going to, like, support your existence on planet Earth? Yeah. I'm like... I don't need to figure all that out. I just need to figure out how I'm going to survive tomorrow. And I have everything that I need to survive tomorrow and the next day. Right. You know, I and don't how have... I'm going to be happy. <laughs> exactly. And so that was kind of like once I, and, and, and ultimately once I kind of broke through the like curtain of like, they just don't really believe in me as being like the reason why they're telling me that. And the real reason is because they're just concerned. Then it was like easier for me to be like, Valid concerns, however, I don't let, like, the concerns of 20 years from now be, like, the we're, primary we're the primary dictator of my daily, day-to-day agenda now. 
yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I think that, you know, parents are just people, right? Yeah. People that had kids. Yeah. And when you're little, they're your superheroes and you think there's nothing they can't do. And the things that they can say can have such greater impact that yeah. then they are able to like notice in the moment. You for know? sure. But for the kid, for you, it could be something that like you stick that sticks with you for the rest of your life or that is like of a, a, a phrase of self definition that like takes years to get past or oh, yeah. never or, and I, I've definitely had those, in, those experiences too with my music and, you know, and my mom and like, they're not, I feel like, with all their best intentions, they're just people and, yeah. and they might say something off the cuff or they might respond in a way where it's like, it's like, damn, that really, uh, it was real, real knife in the ribs. You I know. know. Like, Trust. And when you, and when artists are already so filled with so much self doubt, even the best ones that right. like you can hear a thousand voices screaming and chanting your name, but only listen to the one person who's booing. Oh yeah. The negativity bias. And like, I don't know what it is about artists that make us so susceptible to hearing that one criticism as being the loudest voice. But that was kind of the role of them for a long time in my like early twenties. It Mm -hmm. was like, they're right. I shouldn't be doing this. This is irresponsible, but I'll fix it later. It's my guilty pleasure. As opposed to like, no, this is my journey and my gift mm-hmm. and this is my path. And like, they are not me to make that decision. Yeah. And and like, they don't have to wake up every day with the one that's got the stack of paperwork on their office and a shit ton of phone calls to make. Like, that's their perception of what they want my life to be like. And like, I want to rock out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for lack of a better word. Right. And I think that that's hearing you talk about like the way that your path was like described to you and kind of set up and structured by your parents. I see you, your approach to like music and the business of music is very, it's a lot more structured than like a lot of musicians. Oh yeah. You know, like you are very technical minded and like how you make it all work. And, uh, and yet you still can let loose and play groovy shit, which is yeah, awesome. I try know? to try to not take But it. you do obviously have this incredible work ethic that's like I think is very a huge asset, you know. Yeah, my grandpa my grandpa used to say, um that genius there's lots of geniuses. Um and the most important attribute in your life is persistence. Mm. And being able to be persistent in what you want to be doing to get better at it is the most genius thing that you could have and the most genius quality. So it's like I look at all these like I don't want to call them failed projects because no project is actually failed. Right. But like I look at all these different experiences and I look at like everyone else in the band (laughs) in that band gave up on trying to do this. And I'm the one that's like still out here Mm -hmm. age 30 new project, new music, always putting things out, producing new records, you know, just like doing whatever I can to keep the creative flow moving forward and putting things out into the universe and hoping that like one day 
some some of it will be like recognized and and at minimum help someone. You know, I you were talking about like I like you one of your favorite things is you want to make people dance and you want to look out and see people dance. And there have been times where I thought that that was me. Mm-hmm. And then what I've realized through just like playing other gigs is I actually like when they when the audience is dancing, it's awesome. And I love that. And that's certainly really fun. But the mm-hmm. thing that like gives me at the end of the night the sense that I'm doing the thing that I want to be doing is playing music that has emotion to it. Mm. That's the critical element. Hey, bud. Dancing is emotion, okay? Dancing is emotion. <laughs> Dancing is emotion. I mean, I, I you're talking to the guy that plays with Josiah Johnson. Some of those songs are very – they don't really have a groove. Right. You know, it's a vibe. It's an emotion. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, I – through that experience even – and and that, and Josiah is someone that I I'm, I regularly play with. Mm-hmm. It's like I've realized that dancing element is just um, an element that is commonly used to connect people. But the underlying thing that is even deeper than the dancing is the emotion, so the joy mm-hmm. and the connection with the people around you, right? Yeah. So. I, I don't know. It's it's kind of one of those things that I've had to discover as I kind of matured as an artist to recognize that like music is a conduit for all emotions, not just like you know, party right. basically. Totally. Oh yeah. It's it's more than the party for sure. Um but but I feel you the the uh I think that it's funny because, like, the like the party music scene and the performance at such can be so like self destructive for a lot of artists. Uh, and I mean, it's it's claimed so many of them. Uh, totally. And I think that, like. I I I definitely haven't done as much playing in that context as I'd like. I love doing it. I'm, mm-hmm. I haven't like. I don't know if it's that like I didn't do a bunch of it at a certain age, or I mean I I've partied a ton in my life. Yeah. I went to Santa Barbara for college. Like it was a huge party town, and there was lots of cool music too. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. I I like the groove. I you know. I think that what you're saying is super right on the, I mean, music is emotion in a lot of ways and it hits everybody a little bit differently. It's like what you were saying about explaining the songs before every song. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and the thing is, is musicians don't necessarily know all the things that someone could feel, even yeah. if they're the original writer, they just know their own experience. And this was the mm-hmm. manifestation of it. Yeah. So often, you see like a singer get up on stage and they're like, so this is a song that's about blah, 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 blah. Yeah, exactly. Blah, they only like remember the blah, blah, blah A part. minute of giving the spiel and it's like, I'll be in the audience and I'm like, wait, but like, don't I get to decide like what the song is about for me? Like, like so much about music is like, you have these beautiful lyrics that are intentional and they're like, you know, were written in a state by the, by the creator. But I think that, 
that music, like so much of art, it's like in the eye of the beholder. And, 100%. and as the artist, like you get to put your art out, but you don't really get to decide how people experience it or Absolutely what the emotions not. are that are going to come out of them. You can try and great artists do are able to direct the effect in a certain way, I think. But in order for like, especially with music, I think, but all art to be truly compelling, it needs to be something that the, the person experiencing it, the audience in this case is able to make their own meaning from and is able to attach their own story to. Yeah. You know, like think about growing up like in my teens, getting like super into Tupac and I would listen to Tupac and like, you know, different contexts, different life stories. Yeah. But like what he was saying, I was like, dude, this is like describing who I am and what I'm going through. Like I had such a deep visceral, emotional connection to totally. the lyrics and to the songs that they were like, didn't matter that it was about like being in the hood and gang banging or this or that. Like they were me, you know, like yeah. in those moments that I would listen to him and it had such a profound effect on like how I was making meaning from my world at that time and or zeppelin great example you know like these these bands that have such a huge effect on on people it's, it's like it becomes part of your story yeah the music is the soundtrack to your life right like it's a, we had this amazing social studies teacher shout out paul griffo in high school and i remember he had this project where he where we had to uh write a you know write an essay on what the soundtrack of our life would be well, and yeah, uh, cool. it was it was really cool like it was like one of the projects that i like really like yeah dug in a on cool project yeah and uh so like i did i wrote the the essay and then i burned him a cd <laughs> so i handed oh. in a cd with the essay i was like you want to hear what i'm talking about here you go that's like sick. you should I get like to that. hear it too you know that's cool man i don't know if you ever listened to it or if any of them stuck or if he had his own experiences with them but it was an eclectic mix, you know. There was a, there was a little bit of something for everybody on there. Yeah, and even even like as as like a collaborator with a lot of great storytellers and lyricists and songwriters, it's like even not having experienced anything on the scope and magnitude, I've like been in sessions where like the content in the story of the song was so sad and deep and that like, I just can't hold back tears. And right. I think that that's when you know you're making good shit is when you feel what you feel and you can't, you can't stop. Just like when you're dancing, you're just like, I'm in it. The same goes for sad music too. Yeah. When it's like, holy shit, I can't believe the vulnerability that this artist is taking mm -hmm. the like ability to take a, really really horrible situation and turn it into song yeah just like the the th that in itself is a feat and like i think that there is definitely something to like the ability to communicate those stories that don't necessarily make you want to dance as being just as valid and just as like powerful yeah as you know a dance party or a dance show for sure no i mean it's it runs the full 
range, we can't be dancing all the time. We can't be dancing all the time, but we can try. We can, and, and it is good. To, and it is good to dance. You know, you gotta have no, a bounce. I mean, out. you got dancing is fun. You got you got to ride ride the emotions of the music, and there's different different tunes for different times. Different tunes you know, for different times. I uh, when I was in the midst of like going through having like COVID a couple weeks ago, so I had been sick in bed for days, and I was it was really rough and there was this this one day where i was just scrolling on instagram mm-hmm. and i just came across this artist this guy neil francis and i put on uh, like it was a little like excerpt from one of his songs mm-hmm. and it was really good and i was like okay i'm gonna check out this guy's album and i put on his album and it was like instant chills you know like and not from the sickness like instant chills and it was like that feeling of like hearing someone for the first time where you're like i'm a fan of this this is Mm -hmm. this is like pushing all my buttons in the right way and it ended up like it was like the best i had felt in like a week yeah music is like pulled me out of bed and i ended up for like the whole album I got up and I danced around my hotel room. And I was Isn't it like, amazing <laughs> that music can do that? I I used to be a volunteer at um, Mark Benioff Children's Hospital in the city, mm-hmm. basically doing – it's called an organization called Musicians on Call, and I would basically just go bedside to, like, the most sad and devastating situations, kids with cancer, kids having to basically live their lives at the hospital with small probabilities of surviving, and basically just go in there and jam. That was what I would do. Nice. I'd never had a plan. Okay. I would, I, I like knew a few songs and would just walk in and just play. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people would have like clear requests, but like you realize that like when nothing is going your way, mm-hmm. everything is feeling shitty, you're not sure how anything could get worse, and you hear a song that, that moves you or yeah. like snaps you out of it. You're like, whoa, there was no ibuprofen. There was no drugs that could have done that, at least nothing that I know about, that could simply just by closing your eyes and listening mm-hmm. can snap you out of whatever the fun- f- you know, funk that you're in. And like, those are like some of my like most proud music moments of my life are like instances like that. Yeah, that's amazing. One good thing about music, when it hits, you feel no pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or at least less, <laughs> according to the veteran at the veterans hospital too. That's they say awesome, they feel man. less. Yeah, that's 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 well. Speaking of hitting people with music, you got a show coming up. Yes, I do. Let's talk a little bit about that. Woo! Um, yeah, Friday night, August twentieth at the Independent in San Francisco. Okay, what time? What time are you guys hitting? Nine p.m. 9 9 p.m. doors at 8.30, I want to say. That's awesome, dude. The Independent, I got to say, of the the venues in in the city or in the Bay Area, it may not be the most ornate venue. Yeah. But the sound there is, like, consistently amazing. Yeah, no, they... they, It's such a good sounding room. It's a good sounding room. It's a lot of historic music has taken place on that stage. And... How are you yeah. feeling about it? I'm I'm feeling good. You know, it's it's a weird time to throw indoor shows. We mm-hmm. live in a world where like people kind of are being extremely judgy about <laughs> things like COVID. Don't, don't and, like, I know it? <laughs> and and so like 
you know, do I have some like, do I wish that the show was being held at a different time, like when there was no COVID? Mm-hmm. Of course, but there's COVID, and right. the independent needs to survive, and so does live music. And so, you know, we're doing the best that we can. And, and, well, like, and most most importantly, and this, I feel like this gets forgotten way too much. Like, people need this shit. People fucking like need this like shit you for their like mental i've been health. to a couple shows in the last year and like you can feel like the thirst like people need to get out and have I a know. good time and like and be around each other and like and celebrate to and the risks dance. like that, there's like some major mental health huge things mental health. i know i've been hit by it i know it's been like most of my friends in in some in one way or another have been affected but like, yeah so you guys are doing like that's part of the healing man it's part of the healing i know we're keeping it alive you know and um i think that for me as kind of the band leader it's just it's it's funny like going from like being at home all the time and no gigs and then all of a sudden there's just like a massive influx and then all of a sudden there's a lot of fear so the timing just is bizarre but i don't make the rules i just go with the flow at this point and you know i'm proud of the show that we're gonna put together and and remember that you're doing a service too that and it's fun it's joy we are doing a dance party on friday that is for damn sure are you uh, you guys are playing with another band too? Yeah, there's another band. I have longtime friends of mine. They're a band called Sweet Plot. Okay, and they're um, they're like funky, kind of Grateful Daddy, jammy, simple bass lines. I think you'll like their bass lines. Cool. And um, yeah, they're awesome. What time they're do cool. they hit at? I think ten thirty. Okay. Nice. I think I don't. I don't. I'm not sure. There's. There's like. It's kind of like a co-headlining thing, but mm-hmm. we play first, so it's gotcha. kind of technically the opener. But mm-hmm. um. Anyway, and that's and, still, dude. That's that's what a cool stage to get to play on, though. Yeah, and it's a cool stage, and I'm playing a little bit with Sweet Pot too. Nice. And Cole's gonna sit in with us, and then I have this other friend Frankie who's gonna sit in with us too, and he's really awesome. Nice. So it's it's got a lot of surprises and fun stuff. I'm I'm very like proud of the show because it's many years of work and songwriting mm-hmm. and hustle and shitty gigs and <laughs> blood sweat and tears yeah. and money and right frustration and well you're gonna let it all out you know your name <laughs> is kind of apropos for the for the times right now mm-hmm. just for what you just described just like the social pressures and the judgment yeah. So it goes to the speakeasy, get your music, yeah. slide open the door, you know? Like Yeah, we speak easy. Uh that's cool, man. That's that's really exciting. Um yeah. and and I think are you guys releasing the video on that yeah. day? Yeah, yeah. So so we're doing the song comes out on the twentieth. Okay. And I think that the video people want to see a video with the song. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're just gonna put it all out there and Hell yeah. Show yeah, the world so, what we did that weekend. <laughs> so that weekend that we talked about, ladies and gentlemen, um, it, that the the retreat weekend, the video is finally ready. Yeah, and it's lit. So we'll be releasing that on Friday. Um, but yeah, the, go check out Speakeasy guys. Go see them at the at the Independent this Friday. And um, is, is there any last little things you want to? Mm. that we needed to cover well, well thanks for having me first Dude. off this is really fun it's fun to mountain bike today it was fun to take a sauna and just 
kick back and relax and sweat out all the smoke and mm-hmm. bullshit of normal life and <laughs> much just needed hang out and yeah um yeah i'm i'm just excited to release music I, you know i'm producing a record that i'm really really proud of i think you'll like a Hell lot yeah. um and then obviously i'm producing the speakeasy stuff too and that that was the one that you were doing in the session in the city yeah with the georgia ray record yeah that okay. one is going to be very very magical and that that's basically the story i think i've told you of my friend georgia who's the most gentle and sweetest and kindest and talks very soft and tenderly. <laughs> nice. Um, the story about her father's death and mm. he was a, pro- he was like a pretty prolific musician and he taught her how to play music and they had like, they were working on a song when he passed away and um, about his mental health struggles and the manifestation of that was this record. And oh. So yeah, I'm I I think that like that record is really going to help people who have had rough relationships with their parents and parents that have either left this planet for one reason or another and you know as kids we're learning to live without our parents and I think that the story her story is one that needs to be told and I'm proud that I get to be a part of making it happen for sure. Hell yeah, so, dude. That's the other thing I'm I'm proud of that. Was that the one that where you got to be, meet uh, Bobby Vega? Oh no, that was that was Frankie's album. Okay. I wish I know. I played bass. I didn't need no Bobby Vega. <laughs> <laughs> I think. No. Um, yeah. No. That was my friend Frankie's record. Okay. Who, who you'll meet if you come on Friday. Okay. He's awesome. He's like this like Zen Buddhist master, amazing like Freddie Mercury style singer. Like okay. he like he's kind of like Robert Plant. Kind of. Okay. He, he like he like dabbles on all the instruments mm-hmm. but when you ask him what he does he's like i'm a front man and a songwriter you know he just like stands there with the microphone and he's like yeah and just, nice like, it's all the fucking notes yeah and, um yeah so that'll be cool frankie's tight frankie and frankie is being produced by this guy arnie frager i think i told you about he did 45 songs for prince he produced out of james oh, he wow. produced johnny lee hooker he produced like a bunch of paul mccartney songs Basically, this guy is 79 years old. He's a Bay Area and Los Angeles like music industry legend. And he kind of came out of retirement um, to produce Frankie's record. Wow. Which is pretty cool. Special. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. And it was fun even just getting to go to the studio and checking out like Prairie Prince and Bobby Vega and uh, James DePrado. And like, those guys are just heavy. <laughs> They're heavy hitters. They've. They've uh, they've done some shit in their day. Been around the block. Yeah, Bobby Vega especially. Hell yeah, dude. Well, dude, thank you so much for yeah, coming of on. Course. And before we uh, before we hit the dusty trail, how can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, Daniel Eric Music, and that's spelled D A N I E L E R I K Music. Okay. And that's a really good place to check out and see the random activities that I'm up to on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. as well as all new music and shows and I'm sure we can like post a bunch of links. I got too many bands to be like oh, Right. Yeah. And then Speakeasy Music, right? Speakeasy Music and that's S P E A K E A S E Music. And the E's got a little line above it. Yeah, the E does, but if yeah, if you <laughs> <laughs> we'll post the link huh? 
Hustling. Right on, dude. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, it's been a genuine pleasure, Jan- yeah, Daniel. Yeah, it's been and, fun. Uh, everyone out there, check out Speakeasy, peep the video, and go check them out at the Independent on Friday. Yeah, much love. Peace. All right. That's the podcast, baby. Um, many thanks to Daniel for coming on. It's great to have you, buddy. And I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. I know I did. It was fun. It was good. Um, onwards and upwards. And uh, yeah, go check out Speakeasy tonight at The Independent. It's going to be a banging show. And... I highly recommend it. And check out their single that they just dropped today, Heaven and Sevens. Um, Peep the music video too. The studio version that they're releasing is a little bit different. So I recommend checking them both out. But, uh, you know, congratulations to the band and to Daniel for doing such an amazing job. Nine tracks, two videos in a day is a heroic undertaking. And they crushed it. And uh, for all you out there that like uh female vocal driven neo soul music uh highly recommend it speakeasy on uh, spotify so until next time uh be well my friends and keep on shining